Nehemiah chapter 5, and we're going to cover the whole chapter this evening. It's a pretty cool chapter. One of the things I was thinking about is this, that all life is ministry, and all ministry is for two reasons. Number one, the glory of God, and number two, the good of the people. Uh, As a matter of fact, look at the very last verse of Nehemiah chapter 5, if you would. Fast forward to verse 19, Nehemiah 5. And notice what he says, Remember me, my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. You know, that's really what ministry is. It's uh, for the glory of God and it's for the good of the people. And Nehemiah is an awesome example of that, you know. I pray that we wouldn't lose sight of that. I pray that you guys, we wouldn't get caught up with tunnel vision and we forget that it is about God and it is about his people And as we're here with the different gifts and responsibilities and roles God's given to us, that we'll be able to pray hopefully one day like Nehemiah did. Remember me, God, because by the grace of God, I was actually enabled to do good for the people of God. You know, and so we're going to look at this chapter and we're going to see part of it as there were a lot of hurting people. There were people that were about to die And Nehemiah was used by God to save their life. You know, the same thing is true today. There are people about to die physically and spiritually. You know, literally, there are people out there thinking about suicide. There are people out there who are drinking their liver away, drinking their lives away. There are people out there and they're involved in scandalous things and crimes and you come to them with the gospel of Jesus Christ and God uses you to save their life. Not just physically, that's part of it, but God will use your life to even save them spiritually. And so we see that today, these people on the verge of death and God uses Nehemiah, who is such a courageous man and such a sacrificial man, Uh, in order to work in their life. Notice what we read right here in verse 1 of Nehemiah 5. It says, And there was a, a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. For there were those who said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain, notice, that we may eat and live. I mean, these people were on the verge of dying. They needed food to live. And so it says in verse 3, there were also some who said, we have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. And there were also, it says in verse 4, those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax and our lands and vineyards. Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children, And indeed, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have been brought into slavery. It is not in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and vineyards. This is a really heavy situation, you guys. You know, as you study the book of Nehemiah, you realize that, you know, it was a great work. It says in Nehemiah 4, verse 19, And in chapter 1, verse 5, it says it was a great God that they were serving. But here we read there was a great cry. There was a great outcry. And what was happening was the enemy was coming in, and he was working within the people, 
Prior to this, we saw primarily the fact the way that the enemy works from without, but now he's working from within in order to destroy the people. You know, one of the things that we've experienced at our house, I don't know if you guys can relate to this. Have you guys ever had problems with bees? Is that a curiosity where a whole bunch of bees like attack your house or whatever? I don't know. I guess they find those nooks and crannies. They find those places where your house accommodates them. And I remember for years, we would deal with bees on the outside. And it was a drag. But I'll tell you what, what was really a drag is when they came on the inside. Imagine having hundreds of bees on the inside of your house. That's what we experienced. Now, which is worse? Which do you think is worse? I mean, it's worse probably having bees on the inside, right? Well, that's what's going on now. I mean, the enemy had tried persecuting them from without. That wasn't working. So now he tries to stir up trouble from within. And it had been building up for a time, but now it's the evil day and things are getting crazy. And so what ends up happening is that we're going to see at the end of the day that the Jews, uh, they were... (laughs) They were good businessmen, but they were not good men. Now, the Jews, uh, historically speaking, they were farmers. They were agrarian in in their culture, their way of life. But when they were taken away to Babylon, they learned how to be businessmen. And so, you know, they learned the way it works. Have you guys ever heard that saying, it takes money to make money? Well, so they got some money, and they started loaning it out, and they started making money. And what ended up happening was when things got rough there in Jerusalem, people were borrowing from them, and uh, they couldn't pay them back. And so you were the lender, I mean, and they had no compassion on the people. And so before you know it, they were mortgaging their lands, they were, you know, selling their children, they were, you know, buying them into slavery. I mean, it was just crazy, the situation that we see here. And, and yet, it was completely a violation of God's commandment. You know, in Leviticus 25, in verse 35 through 37, it says, If one of your brethren becomes poor and falls into poverty among you, then you shall help him like a stranger or a sojourner that he may live with you. Take no usury or interest from him, But fear your God, that your brother may live with you. You shall not lend him your money for usury, nor lend him your food at a profit. And that's exactly what they did. They said, hey, you guys are poor. You want to borrow some money? Here's, you know, $5,000, but you got to pay us $7,000 back, you know? And they would charge them, whatever, 25% interest. That, that we see that in the world today, huh? Some of those credit cards is crazy. You spend your whole life trying to pay it off. It never happens. I mean, you go down the street right there. How many of those payday loan places, I mean, do you see? And I tell you what, I've helped people. We try to help people financially who are buried in payday loans. And so that's what was going on here. But the problem was it completely violated scripture. You know, these were Jews that were ripping off other Jews. Right? And God's word was so clear on this. You see, God expected his people who had been blessed financially to help the poor. For example, we read in Isaiah 58, verse 7, the Bible says, It is not to share your bread. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry? This is God's fast, right? And that you bring to your house the people who are cast out. When you see the naked, that you cover them and not hide yourself from your own flesh. God said, I want you to help the poor. I don't want you to exploit the poor. 
Uh, this is the type of people that you need to be, especially when you're talking about your kinsmen, your countrymen, right? God wanted them to give. Uh, and, and when you read the scriptures, it was okay for them to lend money. Uh, Deuteronomy 15, 7 through 8 talks about that, but not for interest. And definitely not to the point where these so-called nobles were confiscating property and even people. I mean, can you imagine that for those of you who have children? You come to a place financially where you owe so much that you are forced to give your children away. Imagine that. You're in a predicament and it gets so bad that here comes a rich guy and you're living on scraps and you have no money to feed your family. And he says, I'll tell you what, I'll buy your daughter from you. And I'll tell you what, you guys going to Cambodia, going to places around the world, this happens. People sell their children because of their great poverty. Well, that was what's happening here in Jerusalem and it was just uh, an outcry of the people. You know, they were able to work. I mean, if they're in that situation and they needed money, I mean, it was okay, okay, you can come and you can work with me. You know, I remember growing up, we had some uh, people that came and worked for my Thea Mary, and she had a little room for them, and they were like employees, but they weren't slaves. They weren't property, but that's where these Jews had come to. And so, um, what do you do? You know, what do we do about the people who are, who are out there in the world that's suffering such things, things greater than being just financially poor. I mean, people who are out there and they're bankrupt in their heart and their life and they're empty and they're struggling and they just want to die and their families are falling apart. What do we do about it? Do we do anything about it? You know, that's the world that we live in. And that's why Nehemiah is such a great example for us. Because notice what happens in verse 6. When Nehemiah hears about this whole thing, it says in verse 6, And I became very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. And after serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and rulers and said to them, Each one of you is exacting usury from his brother. So I called a great assembly against them. And I said to them, according to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. Now indeed, will you even sell your brethren? Or should they be sold to us? Then they were silenced and found nothing to say. Then I said, what you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? I also, with my brethren and my servants, am lending them money and grain. Please let us stop this usury, usury, interest. He said, stop, restore now to them, even this day, their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses. Also a hundredth of the money and the grain, the new wine and the oil that you have charged them. So they said, we will restore it and we'll require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And then I called the priests and required an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. And then I shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out each man from his house and from his property who does not perform his promise, this promise. Even thus, may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And praise the Lord. And then the people did according to this promise. 
I'm telling you guys, man, you can make a difference. You know, I, I pray that you be thoroughly convinced that God is just looking for people, not necessarily, you know, who have the ability, but who have the availability. People who have faith, not in themselves, but in their God, who says, I believe in a God who's gracious, and I believe in a God who can use my life to help them. There are people out there who are exploiting the poor. There are people out there who are instruments of the devil. And like it says right there, what they're doing is not good, it says in verse 9. They're, they're doing things that are not good to the people. But God wants to use our lives to do good for the people. And so he brings us to this place tonight, this juncture in time. I mean, when the Lord's coming back soon, and he says, I want you to study out the book of Nehemiah, and I want you to see the way that he was as a servant leader. As a matter of fact, in going through this section right here, I know there's a lot more things that we can talk about, but there's nine things that kind of stood out to me in looking at this. It was wrong, and so what ends up happening is Nehemiah does nine things. And if you want to write them down, uh, cool, and if you memorize them, you get a free cup of coffee afterwards. <laughs> Number one, Nehemiah got mad. Nehemiah got mad. How many of you guys get mad out of curiosity? And you're proud of it, right? <laughs> you know, I mean, it was wrong. It was wrong what they were doing, right? It was evil. And so it's more than understandable that Nehemiah was angry. You know, just in case you guys didn't know, uh, being angry is not synonymous with uh, sin. Uh, God is angry every day. Did you know that? In Psalm 711, it says he's angry every day with the wicked. You know, but that's not sin on his part. The, the Lord Jesus Christ was angry at times. You know, you read it in Mark chapter 3, verse 5, when he saw the people being hypocritical. Or how about when Jesus saw the people in the temple fleecing the flocks and he went in there and he drove them out with whips and he overturned their tables, so the tables of the money changers that were ripping off the people. It's okay to be angry sometimes. As a matter of fact, sometimes if you're not angry, then something's not right. We should look around the world and see the injustices that are taking place, the babies that are being murdered, and we should be angry sometimes. Sometimes if you're not angry, then something's wrong. Here we see Nehemiah. It says, notice there in verse 6, and I became very angry. You know, and I don't want to use this as giving you guys a license to go home and you get angry with your family and you start sinning and yelling at them. And man, he said it was okay to get angry, right? No. <laughs> you know, the key is Ephesians 4, 26, right? A, it says, be angry and do not sin. That's the key. You have to harness that anger. Remember, anger is just one, word, or one letter away from danger, and there have been murders that have take place because, taken place because someone got angry. And there have been words that were spoken that could never be you know, taken back that did damage to some little child's heart. And so don't let anger get the best of you, but harness it and use it for what it was created for, right? I mean, marriages have been marred, ministries messed up, and even murders have taken place all because of anger. But don't think that it's always bad. Oftentimes, and I would say probably the, the great needs of society today are those things that we see in this world that we should be angry about. And so here's Nehemiah. He sees a situation. Number one, 
he, he gets mad. Number two, he thinks things through. He thinks things through. Notice there in verse 7, after serious thought. And so what's our problem when we get angry, you know? And it's kind of funny. Some of you guys here, like me, we are the peaceful guys. You know, some have even told my, my kids or my wife, oh, man, he never gets angry. Oh, yes, I do. I get angry. Pray for me, man. I got the Hispanic blood inside of me, man. And, you know, um, but, you know, what do you do with that anger? That's the key. Right? If you're at home and you get mad, you get angry, what I want to encourage you to do is, is don't do anything with it usually right away. I mean, take it to the Lord. If you're wrong, he'll show you. If you're right, he'll show you. And not only will he show you if you're right or wrong, but he'll show you what to do next. And that's what happens. I love the way this guy led. He wasn't one of those dumb leaders that didn't think before he spoke or made decisions that messed everything up. You know, you guys know we make a lot of decisions. Did you know that we make 30,000 decisions every day? Did you know that? Every single day. We make decisions and our decisions make us, right? So we have to make sure that before we make decisions, before we blur things out of our mouth, that we think it through, not only thinking, but, you know, praying and taking things to the Lord. Lord, this is a situation, you know, and I suppose it was a just business deal. They probably signed on the dotted line. But Lord, what do I do with this? And so after serious thought, you know, he went and he did the right thing. You guys, don't immediately retaliate. Contemplate. Pray about it. Take it to God. You have a relationship with him. Don't forget that. And he'll tell you what to do. And he'll tell you what to say. He'll put the words in your mouth. But you have to go to him. And when Nehemiah thought about this, notice there again in verse 7, he thought about it seriously. So not only did Nehemiah get mad and think things through, number three, Nehemiah then rebuked them. We see that in verse 7. After serious thought, I rebuked the rulers and the nobles. And I said to them, each one of you is exacting interest from his brother. I mean, Nehemiah then did what he had to do. And that's where it starts. I mean, you don't just go into a situation and clock them. Well, you shouldn't anyways. Well, usually you don't, you know, unless you're trying to defend your family or something, right? And usually you don't just make a decision and let the, you know, the, the bomb fall on them. Usually there's got to be some type of dialogue that takes place. And that's what exactly what Nehemiah did. The Hebrew word translated rebuked here is an interesting combination of pleading, striving, and contending with words. And Nehemiah was a man who, who didn't run from a fight, but when he fought, he fought the good fight. And we got to do that sometimes, you guys. I love what Wiersbe said about him. Nehemiah was not a politician who asked what's popular. He wasn't a diplomat who asked what's safe. No, he was a true leader who asked what's right. And we have to do the same thing. And when he asked the Lord what's right, what to do, God said, I want to muster up some courage within you, and I want you to go, and I want you to set these guys straight verbally. You know, and the enemy was, was working on the inside. You know, ultimately, what's the problem here? What's the problem with these nobles and rulers who we read throughout this book have a hard time really doing what's right, not putting their shoulders to the work. Later on, we're going to see they compromise over and over again. What's the problem with these rich people? 
They're selfish. They're selfish people. You know, they got some money, they got a business, they get it going, and they don't care about the little man. They don't care about that poor person. They don't care about that old lady over there that's struggling or those children who are crying or don't have any shoes. All they care about is themselves. That's what's going on right here. And I'll tell you what, selfishness is the antithesis to love. You know, the very calling for us as Christians is to love God and to love people. And that means you think of them before yourself. These guys, they didn't have a clue what was going on with the people that were out there. And to them, it was a sin of selfishness. Warren Risby said this, Selfishness means putting myself at the center of everything and insisting on getting what I want when I want it. It means exploiting others so I can be happy and taking advantage of them just so I can have my own way. It's not only wanting my way, but expecting everybody else to want my way too. You know, I tell you what, one guy said this, that selfishness is living on the doorsteps of hell. That if that's your life and, you know, we struggle with that because we are in this fallen body, But I tell you what, when you begin to put others before yourself, you will find joy. You know, some people, they got everything. They got everything, and they're the most miserable people on planet Earth. Why? Because that is the antithesis of love. You know, God help us to never come to a point where we just look at things as the the financial decisions and the business and the bottom line. You know, sometimes you've got to give away your last dollar. Sometimes you've got to take a loss. God will test you and God will show us how to help people. We've got to be so careful that we don't become, you know, a, a selfish Christian. And, and so Nehemiah, he rebuked them for this. You know, the fourth thing that we see Nehemiah did is he got others involved Notice again there in verse 7, so, and it says in the latter portion, so I called a great assembly uh, against them. And Nehemiah was a wise man, I tell you what, you know. And if you're going at a situation like this and you don't got anybody praying for you, you don't got anybody else involved, you're the, the lone ranger, you're Superman or whatever it might be, you know, you're going to find yourself in trouble. You know, what I see right here, it, getting others involved, is a hint of Matthew chapter 18. Because undoubtedly, the people that were getting ripped off or the people that were suffering had already gone to the nobles and the rulers. And they probably had taken their family members to the nobles and the rulers. And so now they needed assistance and they needed help. And so they took it to Nehemiah. Nehemiah was wise enough to tell the congregation and he gathers assembly against them, Right? So he finds out and he reaches out to others for help. You know, one thing, it wasn't just to get numbers on his side and, you know, to somehow overpower the sinners. Because I tell you what, when uh, the children of Israel tried to do that against Moses in Numbers chapter 12, God opened up the earth and God swallowed them because God will give the victory to those that are right to his anointed servants. It's not just about numbers. It's about him using wisdom to try to bring these people to a place of repentance, right? I mean, it was partially to make them accountable. 
And at the same time, it was, I think, to keep himself accountable. You know, Matthew 18, one of the cool things about Matthew 18 is this is so your brother sins against you and you go to him, he doesn't get right. And then you go to someone else and you say, hey, can you join me in confronting this individual because they're living in unrepentant sin and they're not wanting to get right and I love them and I care for them. So you go to another mature Christian, you explain the whole situation to them. You know what that does? That brings them into it and they might even say, you're the one who's off. So it's good to get others involved, you know? And so that's what ends up happening to bring accountability to both them and himself. And the fifth thing we see Nehemiah and his brethren do is that they were a good example to them. You know, it's so cool that he had lived the life so that now in crunch time, he was able to tell them, you know what, we've been doing this all along. Verse 8, and I said to them, according to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. Now indeed, will you even sell your brethren or should they be sold to us? Then they were silenced and found nothing to say. I also with my brethren and my servants, it says in verse 10, am lending them money and grain. Please let us stop this usury or interest. You know, we want to help people. We want to make a difference. There are people that are dying going to hell. We want to make a difference. So what can we learn from Nehemiah? I think we can learn some things and God will show you how it all works out. But number one, he got mad. Number two, he thought things through. He prayed about it. Number three, he rebuked them with words. Number four, Nehemiah got others involved. And then number five, Nehemiah and his brethren were an example to them. You know, and and that's so important you know he was able to say you guys over there what we've been doing all along is we've been buying people we've been redeeming them according to the scriptures the bible says that if they are jewish you know the jewish people were slaves that you could buy them back we've been buying them back and you've been putting them in you're undermining the very work that we're trying to do He uses himself as an example, and he says right there in verse 10 that we've been lending them money. We're not charging them interest. I mean, the scriptures even talk about if you lend, Jesus said, don't lend just to get it back. Sometimes you lend money, and you guys know how it is. You're like, I don't know if I'll ever see that again. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about? I mean, you don't go knocking on their door, sending them bill collector phones and phone calls and stuff like that. No, that's... You know, that's the heart that we have. And I tell you what, uh, leaders, pastors, overseers, parents, if you're not living the life, how in the world can you expect your children to? You know, we have to be an example to them. I mean, we're not perfect, but we're proper. You know, and, and that's the, the, the principle that Nehemiah lived out and these leaders It's just so cool. I mean, shouldn't a leader be an example? Should he not practice what he preaches? Should he be able to say, I mean, do as I say and do as I do? I tell you guys all the time, we got to be walkie-talkies, not just talkie-talkies, right? 
I mean, in one sense, and I think about this all the time, you know, how can I preach or say anything? And I'm not a perfect man, but I get convicted. How can I say or ask my children to spend time with the Lord if I'm not spending time with the Lord or to pray or to read their Bible or to have God speak to them if that's not happening to me? How can I expect them to, to tithe or to give offerings if I'm not doing that? I mean, there's nothing that I can ask my children to do that I'm not doing. How can I tell my son to, to you know, make sure that he guards his eyes and he keeps them pure if I'm not? And you know, not just for what everybody sees, but for what I know in my heart. Nehemiah is telling them, this is a life that we've been living. Why are you guys undermining the work that we're doing? You see, the law had made a provision for the people to redeem their fellow Jews from debt and even slavery. And Nehemiah and his friends, they lived that law. You know, they lived the word. And we should do the same. Leviticus 25, 47 and 48, it says, Now if a sojourner, a stranger close to you becomes rich, and one of your brethren who dwells by him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner close to you or to a member of the stranger's family, and he is sold that he may be redeemed again, one of his brothers may redeem him. And so Nehemiah and some of the others had spent their lives and money redeeming their brethren from such slavery. And, and, and you know, we have to have the same heart. That's why uh, the Bible says that if you're to be a leader, you can't be a covetous person. You can't be a greedy guy. You can't be someone who, uh, who can be bribed. You know, because let's just say God does eventually bless the ministry and, you know, they get gazillions of dollars, but that's your heart. Where's it going to go? A lot of times it'll go to you. You know, we have to be so careful in these things. Nehemiah was such a good example to them. And we're going to see that even more as we go through this chapter. Number six, what Nehemiah did there in verse nine is interesting, is, is probably the most important thing is that he pointed them to God. He pointed them to God. Look what he says in verse 9. Then I said, what you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? You know, I mean, he points them to God. I mean, what good would all the other moral stuff do without God behind it, right? I mean, this principle was actually woven into the commandment from the Pentateuch in Leviticus 25:36. It says, take no usury or interest from him, but fear your God that your brother may live with you. I mean, is there a fear of God in your life? You know, one of the things, and you know, we have common problems in the church. I mean, there's pornography. There's people looking at stuff on their phones or their computers. There's guys that are checking out chicks. I mean, you know, and I guess it works the other way. Girls check out guys. I, I, I guess it happens. You know, that's wrong. That is wrong. You know, I mean, for us, you know, there are common pitfalls you know, if you do that, you don't fear God. If you're thinking about someone other than your wife or your husband, you don't fear God. If you talk about people behind their back, you don't fear God. 
And God knows it. I don't, you can ask my wife, I don't talk about anybody behind their back. And every once in a while, someone will want to come up and say a little something, and I just, I just nip it in the bud because I fear God. The fear of God is so important. It keeps us from, from hurting Him, you know? The fear of God, and I, we've talked about this, you guys. It's, it's not like, you know, you're driving home. Let's just say you're just learning how to drive, and you're driving home, uh, late at night, and you see a police officer behind you. And you're like, oh, man, you know, you're all tripping out and sweating bullets. And, you know, some people see God like that, and they fear God like that. He's just waiting for me to make a, a wrong move so he can slap me with some, you know, crazy ticket. No, God's not like that. But, but he is a God who disciplines. You know, I think of it more if you're driving home late at night and and your father is in the car behind you. Yeah, he's watching you. Yeah, he may take away your Ovaltine if you don't drive right or something, you know. But, I mean, it's a lot different. You guys know how God is? Let's, let's make sure we know how God is. God is gentle. God is long-suffering. God is patient. Imagine where we would be if God got us every time we messed up right away. I mean, we'd be in big trouble, right? But if we continue in sin... Let me ask you a question. Will he deal with you? Absolutely. He will discipline the children that he loves. And so with that understanding of who God is, we need to walk in the fear of the Lord. I mean, the Bible talks about the fear of the Lord. I was writing down a, a few scriptures. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. The Bible says the fear of the Lord prolongs days. The fear of the Lord leads to life. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. And that's why we, we have to fear Him. It'll keep you sexually pure. It'll keep you on that straight and narrow road. The fear of the Lord will bring you to a place like Nehemiah where God will use your life for his glory and their good. But if you don't have the fear of the Lord, then you will then stifle the calling upon your life. It's a huge issue. It's the beginning of wisdom. I pray we would have that. You know, we read later in the book of Acts how God blessed the church when they feared him. It says in Acts 9.31, Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. And so, you know, he's talking to these guys, man, and he, should you not walk in the fear of our God you know, the nobles and leaders had lost the fear of God, and they lost their witness in the process, right? Right there, Nehemiah talks, because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies, and not only was it doing bad to the people that were within the camp, but it was doing bad to the people without the camp. I wonder if you guys have that in your heart. I know some of you here do. How many of you here are just like you're consumed almost not in a bad way, but in a good way, with your witness. With your witness. Man, you don't want to blow your witness. Not because you, you know, it has nothing to do really with what people think of you. 
It has everything to do with what people think of God. You're a Christian. You're a pastor. And what does my neighbor think of me? You know, or, or whatever the, the case may be. You know, you go out and, and you see people and you're wearing the T-shirt. I mean, to me, that witness for the Lord is huge. And that's what Nehemiah is trying to tell him. You know, we're supposed to be a witness to the Gentiles. And, you know, you guys, Israel, you've been blessed by the Lord. Man, you've been given the law. He's come. He set you free. He was a pillar of fire by, by night, a pillar of cloud by day to show you the road that you should travel. God's given you so much. What for? So that you can be a light to the Gentiles. But now they hear about you, supposedly God's people, and you're fleecing the flock, and you're abusing the people. It's a terrible situation. It's a poverty situation that has been forced on them by the rich people. Why would anybody want that God? And, and so, you know, Nehemiah right here, he just deals with them. You know, the Bible says in Romans 2.24, Paul wrote about this. He said, for the name of our God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. You know, be so careful that you are not the reason someone stumbles into hell. Because you say you're a Christian, but you don't live that, that life. Not to put pressure on you, but I do pray that we would have a healthy fear of God. Nehemiah is so cool. Next, number seven, look at verse 11. Uh, it says in verse 11, Restore now to them even this their day, their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses. Also, you know, you give them a hundredth of the money and the grain, the new wine and the oil that, that you have charged them. Imagine that. Nehemiah is saying, give them back their land. Oh, but we, are, we made a contract. No, give them back their land. Give them back everything. And you give them some money on top of that. Now, I'll tell you what. That takes a little courage. Number seven, Nehemiah was strong. He was strong. He was specific. And he called them for restoration. You know, you, if you're going to be a leader, you're going to have to be strong. You're going to have to be strong. If you're going to be a leader in God's house, you've got to be strong. And you've got to protect the people. You might not be able to be strong on your, on your own strength because a lot of us here, we don't have it in us. We were not wired that way. We were not knit together that way in our mother's womb. We don't have it in us, but we have God in us. And God is strong. And he will show you specifically what to do in order to make restoration and remedy in lives that are ruined. And he will call people, and God will use you to call people to the carpet and say, this is the way that you will show fruit of repentance. You got to give everything back. How did all this, how did Nehemiah get all this? It was by the Holy Spirit. You know, the, the Lord showed him. You know, there wasn't going to be any, you know, sad compromise. You know, a lot of us here, myself included, without the Lord, I probably would have gone into that meeting and just said, oh, are you guys sorry? You know, tell them you're sorry. Okay, we're sorry. Okay, we'll see you tomorrow. You know, God bless you. Go have a Pop-Tart or something. I mean, you know, it's, you know, a lot of us would do that. And he said, no, uh, action, uh, action. I want, you know, there to be fruit here. I want this to be rectified, right? I mean, a lot of times we're tempted to compromise. We got we to gotta be so careful with that. 
Nehemiah number eight, he required accountability before God. You know, he didn't just take their word for it. We read that in there in verse 12. And so they said, we will restore it and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And then I called the priests and required an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. You know, I mean, Nehemiah was not some weak, feeble, gullible leader. Uh, he was well aware of the wickedness of man and maybe a little street smart. You know, I, I, didn't, I remember when I first started in the ministry, I didn't realize that people could actually lie. I didn't know that. So I'd be talking to people, businessmen. Oh, yeah, we'll have it there on Wednesday. Oh, great, you're so excited. It's going to be there on Wednesday. They meant Friday. I mean, they never tell the truth, you know? And even in the church, you're like, well, you believe everything everybody says. I remember when we first started the church, giving away just so much money. Oh, that happened to you? Oh, I feel so bad. And then eventually, it just got hit me with a light bulb. They're lying. People lie. They lie about things. You look them straight in the eye. I mean, straight in their eye, and you ask them a question about the situation, whether or not they took drugs. No, I haven't done drugs in three months. And they did it yesterday. I mean, they're high when you're talking to them. Sometimes I, I can't see that. Henry has that gift. He can tell, oh, yeah, they're high. I can't. I don't know why. And... and you know, then the Lord just shows you, well, you know what? What, what the Lord does with me now is like, well, I'm going to like hear what you say, but I'm not going to take it to the bank. I mean, your life will show whether or not what you're saying is true. You know, so what he does here is he says, okay, we're going to bring the priests in right here, and they're going to make you swear an oath, and you're going to do this before Almighty God. I mean, this is so cool, the way he made them accountable. And then the last thing is how Nehemiah warned them in verse 13. He shook out the fold of his garment. He says, so may God shake out from each man, from his house and from his property who does not perform this. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the people said, amen. You know, I warned you. I warned you. You know, and I honestly can say, as I continue to teach through the word, you know, I try not to be mean, but I try to be true to what the word says. I warn you. I warn you guys. You know, that's what Nehemiah did right here. He warned them, right? The shaking of the robe was a visible warning to the violators of God's word, God's word that if they did not change their ways, God would deal with them and shake up their lives and leave them empty and bankrupt. And so that's what leaders do. You know, praise God in looking at this, that they did respond to Nehemiah's rebuke. Um, but we're going to see as we continue through this thing that it's only for a season. And so let's close the chapter um, in verse 14. It says, Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year until the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the governor's provisions. But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Yes, even their servants bore rule over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God." Indeed, I also continued in the work on the wall, and we did not buy any land. All my servants were gathered there, notice, for the work. 
And at my table were 150 Jews and rulers besides those who came to us from the nations around us. Now that which was prepared daily was one ox and six choice sheep also fell were prepared for me and once every 10 days an abundance of all kinds of wine. Yet in spite of this, I did not demand the governor's provisions. Why? Because the bondage was heavy on the people. So he prays at the end there in verse 19, Remember me, my God, for good according to all that I have done for this people. And so in in looking at the end right here, what we find is as a leader, Nehemiah did not take advantage of the people. Nehemiah and his men were not there to make money or to get wealthy. I mean, if they wanted to, they could buy land, and I think the the value is going to start going up right now, right? I mean, no, it says there in verse 16 that, that they were actually there to do what? They were there to work, right? And that's what we see they, they did. I mean, you know, when I was looking at this and just kind of studying this whole thing out, uh, I, I think it's important for us to know that that's got to be the heart of a leader. Um, this last Tuesday, I was watching the video, Venture of Faith. It's on the, the philosophy of ministry, Calvary Chapel, and just the leadership of Pastor Chuck Smith. And he was talking about how when they first started off, how he was you know, um, getting $15 a week uh, being a pastor, and his rent was $45 a month. It didn't leave him a lot left over. He said a lot of times they didn't have any food. And they just had to pray. And God was always faithful to provide a little something in the mail, or someone would give him a card and... Uh, They had both grown up in fairly well-to-do families, but they had to learn to live by faith. And he said during those early years, God taught them to live simple lives. God taught them to dress in simple ways. You know, and, you know, eventually what God did with Calvary Chapel is just amazing. The, The way that God blessed Chuck Smith and... You know, the funds and the buildings and the properties and the books, you know, all that kind of stuff. But it didn't come to him. You know, he put it back into the ministry and he always drove a a modest vehicle. He lived in a modest home. See, that's a leader. Someone who is in it for the Lord. You know, and I can tell you stories about different people in the ministry. They never got a raise. Barely, you know, were making ends meet. But God used them in such a great and mighty way. This has to be established in our hearts. You know, Nehemiah going through this, yeah, you know what? There, there was some provision there. Um, in verse 18, some say, well, maybe it was from the king. Others say perhaps it was something from the people. It wasn't a lot, that's for sure. When you think about how this all adds up with all those people, I mean, maybe he got a drumstick, you know, once a week or something like that. It wasn't a lot, you know, but he was in it. Why? He was in it for the right reasons. You know, I was uh, looking online about how some of our political leaders in the world that we live in, you know, they make a lot of money and, you know, I don't know how much our president should make, um, but did you guys know he makes, he makes $400,000 a year? That's not bad. You know, that's not chump change, huh? He, he does have a pretty stressful job, but the f- fact of the matter is that's eight times more than the average American makes. 
uh, I, I was uh, uh, looking at different things online, and I think Nehemiah probably would have rebuked President Obama. But um, I'll tell you what, it's not as bad as the leader of Singapore. I can't pronounce his name, Lee Sien Loon. Did you guys know that he makes $1.7 million each year, which is 30 times the average of the average Singaporean? As a matter of fact, it's interesting. This guy right here, between 2008 and 12, he earned $3.5 million every year, but he was pressured by the public, and so he took a pay cut. Now, poor guy, he only makes $1.7 million each year. I was looking at different things. I was impressed by one guy, Michael Higgins. He's the president of Ireland. And immediately when he took office, immediately the first thing he did was he insisted on a 30% pay cut. And I was blessed by that guy. Still making pretty good money, but realizing, you know, you, you don't need all that. I was really bothered by some of the pastors and ministers that are out there. Uh, I'll give you guys just the top five because we could be here all night talking about these guys. Creflo Dollar, $27 million, right? Joel Osteen, $40 million. Benny Hinn, $42 million. Pat Robertson, $100 million net worth. And then number one, you'll never guess who it is, Kenneth Copeland, $760 million. He runs this ministry, I guess it's a 1,500-acre campus. He has a private airstrip, a hangar for his other aircrafts and personal jet, a $6 million lakefront mansion. He doesn't hide his wealth. As a matter of fact, he claims to be a billionaire. So I tell you what, you compare him to Nehemiah. You compare him to Jesus. And then you find out who a real minister is. And so Nehemiah here, what does he do? He closes in prayer. Verse 19, remember me, my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. Now, I don't think we should see this as Nehemiah kind of tooting his own horn. As a matter of fact, some people say that this was a journal that Nehemiah wrote kind of just between him and God. We don't know for sure. But um, I do know it's a prayer of a faithful servant that basically he's just asking God to remember his labor of love. And for those of you who do serve the Lord and you do work the Lord for the Lord and you do it for his glory and their good, I want to remind you according to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10, the Bible says, For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward his name in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. So one day you're going to be rewarded. God won't forget. Amen.